I don't know if you've ever been in this situation before, but I feel like I've been in it many times. There's this television show or there's this movie that I'm watching and maybe I watched it a long time ago and then I recommend it to a parent, a grandparent, a pastor friend, a donor to Chi Alpha. And sometimes we'll watch the movie together and I'll forget till we're right in the middle of it some of the awkward, sketchy parts of the movie or TV show. Have you guys ever been in that, in that moment? Yes. Great, four of us. That's super cool. That's related well to everybody. Um, so I share that kind of brief anecdote because I feel like Colossians 3 is one of those passages that I committed to talk about months ago, but probably could have planned to be sick this week. It is filled with lots of stuff from life and death to the supernatural to discussing sexual immorality and idolatry. Uh, it talks about submission and marriage and slavery. So all the things that I would prefer not to talk about are covered in 25 or 26 verses. So it's really great to be me right now. Um, so hold that thought. We're going to go through the passage in, in just a minute. Um, but I want to get this picture in your mind. I was a 20-year-old pastor at my home church in rural Georgia, and I was giving or overseeing my first funeral. I was, in the South, we'd say I was preaching my first funeral, because at funerals, there's preaching. That's not always common, I guess, in every place in the world, but that's like the perfect time for preaching if you're a Southern Christian, is at a funeral, captive audience. Um, and so I was... I was, I was preaching the funeral, 20 years old, because the lead pastor was out of town, um, so that was super cool. And at the time, I, I learned a valuable lesson, that if you're ever going to preach your first funeral, you probably shouldn't do it the week after middle school youth camp. Because back in the day, I was a middle school youth pastor, and to build culture, to have fun, to be kind of that edgy guy, uh, we all got mohawks at youth camp. And so I had the privilege, one might say, of giving a funeral sermon with a mohawk. So just kind of picture that awkwardness and just sit with that. And the story that leads up to that is even better. I didn't even know the, the, the wife um, of the man who had passed. I actually wound up in the hospital visiting him. And no lie, I was in the room with him and I was praying. I was asked to pray. And at that moment, I didn't know if he was dead or alive. I was brought into the room, there's another chaplain, there's this woman, there's tears, there's a body, and then it's my turn to pray, and it's like the most nervous I've ever been praying ever. Like, am I gutsy enough to pray for resurrection? Do I pray for healing and he's not even alive? Do I start praying like for comfort? And like, oh, that, you know, that, that the Lord just wrapped his arms around his wife. And then like, he just like wakes up. He's like, hey, I'm still here. <laughs> it was a really terrible moment. So if you even circle back from the Mohawk funeral to being in the room with the guy who I'm not sure whether he's in heaven or on earth or elsewhere. And then having to lead a prayer in that moment. And I share that story because one of the most common images that we need to reflect on as believers is the image of a funeral and a birth. These are two central ideas, themes, and pictures in the Christian faith. And so thankfully, in the Christian faith, there's not always a mohawk involved at the funeral. But as we read Paul's writings in the New Testament, there seems to be a lot of discussion about death and life. And it's not just about death and life in Christ or of Christ. Yes, he did die and then rose again. But instead, we see these themes continually being talked about, death and life, that there are things in our lives, in our seasons, in our stories 
they come to a point of death, and there are other things that maybe we are asked to put to death so that we can experience life. So all throughout the next 20 or 30 minutes or so, I want us to keep those images in mind and remember that there's something deeply, innately, essentially Christian about those two images and themes of a funeral and a birth. And Jolene did a great job last week in Colossians 2, helping us really understand the gospel, that it's not about bad people becoming good, it's about dead people coming alive. And so I want to read through Colossians 3. You can turn with me in your Bible or in an app. It'll also be on the screen. I'm going to read through it in its entirety. It's about 20 some odd verses. It'll take me three minutes. Stick with me. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Verse 5. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And there's this interesting list we're given. Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires and greed, which is idolatry. Verse 6. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. Right, this is a super easy chapter for us to read tonight. Verse 7. You used to walk in these ways in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourself of all such things as these. Anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other since you have taken off your old self with its practices, verse 10, and have put on the new self which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. We're halfway there. Verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach, and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Verse 18, let's get ready. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it, not only when their eye is on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters. Since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. Last verse, 25. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. Let's be real. That was an interesting roller coaster of emotions. There's death, there's life, there's evil desires and greed. We're told to put on clothes of kindness, and then we're kind of thrown in a loop when words like submission, slaves, and earthly masters just seem to pop up right at the end after the good stuff. So I'm not really going to be teaching the entire chapter that would take all night, and none of us have time for that. I'm going to focus on the first five verses of this chapter. However, I don't want to ignore 
or avoid the seemingly controversial last few verses of the chapter, which in my opinion start in verse 18. So for about like five minutes, I want to go through these verses. And it's not connected to where we're going later. So if you try to connect the dots, you won't be able to find the line. I want to talk, I want to do like a micro sermon on these sketchy verses, and then I want to do a mini sermon on verses one through five. If I did a full sermon on both, that would take way too long. And so I want us to dig into these verses that maybe, hopefully, make us uncomfortable. In fact, I think I would be surprised if you sat here and heard that being read and you weren't at least aware of the tension in the room. I think I'd be concerned. If you're like, oh, what, what tough verses? That sounded pretty standard to me. I'd be like, oh, classic white guy move. Um, so, so I want to jump into this. So there's four things, and if you're jotting notes, I'm going to go quickly. Um, and not everything I say will be on the screen, but you're smart and can keep up. What do we do when we encounter tough texts in the Bible? The first thing we have to do is be honest about the tension and the toughness of aspects of Scripture. We have to call it out for what it is. We have to say, this is difficult to hear, and I'm not sure how I would ever live into this. When we aren't honest, we're not fooling God, and we end up harming ourselves, our relationship to Scripture, and thus our relationship with Jesus. One of my favorite Catholics and Catholic authors, he's both, G.K. Chesterton uh, says this, anytime we come to a passage of scripture that we disagree with, we need to humbly and quickly submit to it. So let's keep that in mind. Third, we need to remember, we talked about it a few weeks ago, the Bible is for us, but it's not written to us. We're not the original recipients. It was meant to get to us, but it's gone through a lot of things to get here. And the first people that were hearing it, that were reading it, might have a different first take than we have. And it's important to take our cues from them and not necessarily ourselves or the culture around us. The fourth thing is this. If we're never willing to be wrong, we'll never be in a position where God can make us right. If we don't approach scripture with a willingness to be wrong, it's like those conversations late at night in the dorms. If the person's not willing to be wrong, why are we having this political debate about The Bachelor, right? It's that thing that we've all been a part of. With that being said, I think it's really important that you hear this. We need to make sure we understand the text fully before we apply it personally. And I want to be really clear. This is a kind of secret of... Of Christianity that no one wants to talk about and it's this no one just reads the Bible and applies it nobody does that no one just reads the Bible and then evenly applies all sections of Scripture even Jesus in this earthly ministry doesn't give equal voice to all of the prophets and all the situations in the First Testament or Old Testament he has a dynamic view. There's a story. There's a theological drama. There's a narrative. There's a process. There's progressive revelation. So we need to also be honest about this, is that we all have an interpretive lens. Now, if somebody in your life says, I don't have an interpretive lens. I just read the Bible and apply it. I want to I say they're misguided, probably wrong, and either super conservative or super liberal. And in my estimation, they are sacrificing an authentic faith expression for an easy answer on either side of being super conservative or super liberal. The Bible is an invitation for us to know Jesus and be exposed to the kingdom of God. So I want to do something. Uh, Grace is going to help me, one of our awesome student volunteers. I want to look on the screen. Uh, I want to just show you this text. 
So yeah, kind of hard to read. But the top one is how it was probably in your Bible, right? There's verses, there's headings, there's a break, and then it says instruction for Christian household. And it seems like a whole nother thought is about to happen. Like here's all this theological information, boop, break, there's how you apply it. However, that is not how this letter was originally designed or delivered. It looked more like the bottom. Now you might be like, that was a cool geeky fact. Don't know how that helps me. Let me tell you how it helps you. And we're gonna figure this out together. Let's go to the next slide, Grace. So this is exhibit A. And I would like someone to either read off the screen, a student, or read in the NIV. I promise if we're in the same version, it makes for a way easier case. To start in verse, what is that? Thank you, verse 12, and then read through at least most of the sketchy stuff in 25. And then pause where there's breaks. Thank you so much, Hina. That's the VIP table right there. I love my table. They paid extra for that double tithe. Um, therefore, this is verse 12. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you have has grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ will you rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace, and be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly, as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And this is where our translators put in a break in all of our translations in English. There's a break, there's a pause, there's a heading, and depending on your version, it may say something different. This one is like, okay, instruction for Christian households. If you're a Christian and have ever been in a house, listen up. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only with when their eye is on you and to create their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. So maybe if, I would assume that if you're a woman in here and you, you hear that, you're like, well, it's really hard to just uh, be thankful, like he kind of says earlier, if I'm kind of just told submission is kind of the path that Jesus sees me on. Now in exhibit B, let's switch over to that, Grace. What's, what's important about removing the break is that we need to connect the context of the verses with the instructions. Does that make sense? Yes. Thank you. One person gets it. <laughs> so in the NIV, if somebody can read from the screen or their app, starting with therefore is God's chosen people, and then read it, and we can hear it as one progressive thought connecting what we could call the spicy verses to the heart or the thrust of the passage, which is actually about being God's chosen people and living in peace. Does somebody read that? 
Thank you. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Oh, over all the virtues. Interesting. Let, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you are called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Wives, submit to your husbands, as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives, and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not embitter your children, or they will become discouraged. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything. And do it not only when their eyes on you and to curry their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for human masters, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for their wrongs, and there is no favoritism. You see how it rings a little bit differently? I'm assuming it still stings a little bit, but it, it reads and rings a little bit differently when we connect what Paul's doing, talking about who we are, whose we are, and how that might impact our current surroundings. Just like Paul and Jesus aren't prescribing slavery, I would make the argument that they also aren't prescribing Marriage to be defined as a wife submitting to a husband, and, and here's one of the uh, one of the reasons that I, I believe this. We can go to the next slide. Um, there's yes, yeah, so I'll go this real quick. So there's a few ways we teach in our NLIs how to navigate tough texts. Just want to recap: community, Christendom, consistency, context, and creation. We use those as lenses, and then we filter it all through Christ. So that's just a little bit of a primer, and then let's go to the next slide. Grace is doing awesome tonight. Great, and so I want to talk about this article that I read, and it's called Sex, Supper, and Submission. And this article recounts a really sad story where a young married couple walked into their church, and it was Sunday school, and a woman who was teaching the Sunday school class um, writes those words on the whiteboard, sex, supper, and submission. And then she tells all the new married couples, like, women, those three S's are your job. That is what the Lord has for you. And then some people in the room thought it was just like a bad joke, and then it wasn't. It was just an hour of teaching about how women should just, that's the reality of where the cross positions them. Now, I want to be uh, candid without being crass. Sex, supper, and submission should be a part of marriage, but they should not be only one person submitting to another. There shouldn't be a hierarchy in marriage. In other words, there should be mutuality. So yes, a godly marriage should have those three things, but they shouldn't be three things that are the responsibility of or provided by just the woman. 
What's really interesting about Colossians 3.11 is that we get a list of labels. We see it in Galatians as well. It's like there's either slave nor free, Greek nor Jew, and we see all these things. And what Paul is doing in both of those places is he's not saying that those, those labels are now erased. He is saying something more important. He's saying that those distinctions are no longer determinative. He isn't saying that now we're all just kind of like just humans and there's nothing distinctive about who we are, where we're from, the language we speak or the gender we have. But he's saying that those things no longer determine your identity if you're in Christ and in the kingdom. He's not saying let's get rid of all the terms. He's saying let's reorder the value of the terms and place Jesus at the center. Now, a lot of Christians would read this and want to just apply the plain text reading of this passage. It doesn't surprise me that a lot of men who happen to be preachers would want to present a plain text reading of this passage. But it's always important to keep this in the back of your mind. Who is this theology costing and who is spreading this theology? This theology, any theology, if it's spread by one person that somehow doesn't end up having to live under that theology, it should at least be a red flag. If I preach a costly theology, but for a gender that's not mine, or a race that's not mine, or a people group that's not mine, I don't know if I'm preaching the theology of Jesus. Following Jesus is costly. At times it feels disproportionate, but it's not designed. We are not designed to be subservient to one another. In fact, Jesus and Paul are subverting the systems of their day. In this article, the husband of the woman who went to that awful Sunday school wrote this. He says, the Colossians were living in a totalitarian patriarchy, a sociological model that placed the male in complete and total control. For the most part, men were the only ones who could own property, and sadly, that included slaves, concubines, children, even wives. Women were possessions to be owned, not members of the family. The first century Middle Eastern male's possessions existed solely to benefit himself. Slaves and children for working for the estate, concubines by meeting the man's sexual desires, and then the wife meeting the need of bearing male heirs. Paul is not comfortable with this, and Paul in this letter is trying to change this. Paul sees Jesus doing some pretty radical things. Jesus saves the woman caught in adultery, forgives her, and rescues her in John 8. Jesus commends Mary for sitting at his feet in Luke 10, and that was a place specifically reserved for men and men that were in religious schooling. But he says publicly, this is a place where you should sit. When everyone else avoided the woman at the well because of her ethno-linguistic group, because of who she was and her past, Jesus goes out of his way travels longer to get to her to give her forgiveness and eternal life and then she becomes an evangelist leading dozens of families in her community to know god when a sinful woman interrupts simon's dinner party by pouring perfume on his feet still a weird story luke 7 jesus defends her elevates her redeems her and says anytime the gospel is preached you're going to hear this story And then a woman, Mary Magdalene, is one of the first at the tomb of Jesus, while the disciples, mostly male, are hiding elsewhere in fear. And then she's the first to be commissioned as a messenger of the gospel. And you might say, well, she was told to go tell it, but she's not the preacher. But in that time, whoever delivered the message was considered the most valuable resource to deliver it. That's why many of us think that Hebrews was probably written by Junia because she is said to deliver some of Paul's letters. She wasn't delivering them like an underpaid USPS worker. She was delivering them with authority. Mm -hmm. 
Here's what Paul is doing. Paul is saying in verses 18 and 19, a parallel command to lay down everything for each other, including your life. It's interesting how the commands are different, but they speak volumes into our life and into the culture of that day. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. That probably felt really short and disappointingly not intense to the men that were hearing this letter being written. They were like, that is less than culture is telling us to expect from somebody else. Maybe they made it to the next part of the letter. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. We're like, well, is that really fair? Love and submission? Not sure that's even. What's interesting is in the original language, that word love is agape. It's not eros. It's not brotherly love. It's agape. It's the same word used in John 3.16, a love that is self-sacrificial, a love that is willing to die for the betterment of somebody else. Paul is arguing in Colossians, and in Galatians, that we're to live counterculturally, and that Jesus is inviting us into a story of mutuality. That regardless of our traditions or past, that Jesus is saying, your identity that once was yours before me is still part of you, but it's no longer determinative in how much access you have to me, and how much access you have to learning in the church, or what your role should be in a marriage or in a family. You guys tracking with me? Yes. Sometimes the Bible brings more freedom than our interpretive lens of patriarchy, capitalism, and American ideals allows. Sometimes we get frustrated with Paul because we're looking at Paul through a specific American lens and we're not realizing the radical ideas that Paul is presenting. I used to think that Paul was someone that annoyed me, but in fact, Paul is someone that challenges me to think higher about these things. Eugene Peterson talks about Jesus like this. He says, Jesus is more political than we'd ever think in ways we don't imagine or expect. So if I could borrow that kind of structure, I would say this. In the Bible, Paul is more engaged in the discourse about gender and sex than we'd ever think, and his conclusions aren't always what the church tells us to apply. He is talking about it. He is making statements about it. But there's a disconnect between what he says and what others say we should do in light of what he's saying. That's why it's important that we read scripture for ourselves. That's why the Protestant Reformation gave us this idea of the priesthood of all believers. I love what one theology professor says. It doesn't mean that we get to be priests unto ourselves, but that we get to be priests for and with each other. It doesn't mean that you and I get to go to the tough texts alone and decide how they fit into our political framework. Instead, it means we get to be priestly towards one another, discerning what life looks like. So that was the micro-sermon, if you can believe it. Let's get to verses 1 through 5. Since then, you've been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. Notice in verse 3, it's a, it's a past tense about death and a present tense about life. It's making the argument that our life is hidden with Christ and God here on earth, not just a life with Christ and God in heaven. That's important. Verse 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. This idea is introduced in Romans 8. It's pretty radical. It's saying, yes, we are to give God glory, but in the end, we get to be a part of the glorification with him. That we're not just there subservient in worship, but we're invited into relationship 
as whole and holy people with glory for ourselves as well. Not fame, a cheap imitation of glory, but a true, weighty, good, joyous, heavenly glory. Verse 5, put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Those are my favorites, which is idolatry. I always love that. I, I was bringing my wife brought a friend to church one time, and after church, I was just like, what's your favorite sin? And I was just like joking around, and then she answered, and then I had to answer. Um, so yeah, mine's usually evil desires and greed. Anytime in the Psalms when it's like, don't envy the evil people, you can read that and be like, who would envy the evil people? I do. I envy them all the time. They get all the shiny stuff and never have to apologize. Okay, back to the text. <laughs> Verses 1 and 2 seem like smooth sailing, right? And then it seems to get rocky in 3 through 5. Not as rocky as the end of the chapter, but it seems to get a little bit interesting. We're told that things have been put to death, new life is starting, and then we're told, hey, whoa, whoa, put to death whatever belongs to your earthly nature. And then we're given a list of things that at some level all of us have a desire to engage in. Here's the deal. Write it down if you're taking notes. Everyone wants a resurrection and no one seems to want a death. That's the reality of following Jesus as humans. Because I don't know if I always feel like my life is hidden with Christ and God. I mean, it sounds great. It'd make a good t-shirt, a decent bumper sticker. Sometimes I feel like my life is simply hidden, not with Christ, not in God. I feel underseen, undervalued, low affirmation, low relationship, high stress. Sometimes I've been in seasons where it seems like my best times with God are in the past, and I'm not sure they're going to repeat themselves. It seems like an old CD that I played for a while, and now it just doesn't work. It seems to skip. Other times it feels like, Heaven couldn't come soon enough. And I don't mean it in a cliche, but like I really sometimes think, wow, if I could be in heaven, this would be way better than what I'm living now. But I want my life to be made alive in Christ. I want to experience the joy and the fullness that God offers. I want to respond to God movements with gratitude, peace, joy, dancing, shouting, and excitement. I truly wish that if my story, my testimony was listed in the book of Acts, that it would be on par with the other stories that are there. People that not only saw God transform them, but then they contended for even more of his spirit. People that responded in worship and gratitude when God seemed to even do the littlest things in their story. One of the things that we need to be honest about as a community is that many of us would say that we want peace but we have become really good friends with stress and struggle. They're old friends that we can count on. They're reliable, they're consistent, and if we live without them, we would feel empty. That's what happens when we're trained to live with something that's a parasite, we forget that it's a parasite, and then when it's removed, it feels like a loss. That's what stress and struggle can be in our stories. But Jesus is inviting us not to live a better story for ourselves, but into his story. A story that's happening now, a story that's happening tomorrow, and a story that's happening in eternity. C.S. Lewis talked about the good news of the gospel like this. He says, for those that have read and understood the claims of Christ, but dismissed them, shouldn't some natural part of them want to want to believe? Isn't the goodness of Jesus so good that somewhere deep down, even the most non-religious person would say, I just wish it was true? Like, are we living in a way that those around us would say, I don't believe it, but I, I wish I could? Yeah. 
That's the type of good news that we are seen and invited into. During Lent, I've been reading and rereading passages in Luke. On my Bible app, in my print Bible, with the Dwell app, I've been listening to it. And I'm just struck by the kindness of God. I'm just struck that not only is God so faithful when I'm fickle, but he's just kind. He's just good. He's constant, even when we change. I see it so specifically in Luke 1 through 4. I love that Jesus gave, I love that God gave Jesus and John the Baptist each other. Talk about a great cousin or familial relationship. I can't believe that God was just so intentional about his goodness that he gave Mary Elizabeth. That they were overlapping in their pregnancy. He didn't have to do that. I mean, it's just like so crazy. Like he just thinks on a whole nother level of goodness than I think. Even at times when I don't want to give him the base level of being good. Jesus, in the Gospel of Luke, he's, he's personable, he's radical, he's thoughtful, and yet he's comforting. The Holy Spirit in Luke and in Acts gives us power, provides us insight, gives us anytime access, doesn't force us to prove ourselves, and doesn't penalize us for ways we've missed him in the past. He's not only good in himself, but God desires for us to experience good in our outer life. He wants it in our inner life. That's his priority. But he also desires it in our outer life. Being in Chi Alpha many, many, many years ago, I found deep, true, real, and imperfect friendships. I was writing down a few of the names of people who I was really close to in my life group and part of our Chi Alpha. I think about Ryan. He was one of the first people uh, I met that was honest and vulnerable about his sexuality and identity and struggle and decided to lean into brotherhood instead of running away. And he hosted my life group for years and we grew in a friendship that I never expected. And I think I got a picture of what it meant to have a brother uh, in Ryan. I remember Josh, my college roommate. I don't even think I was a good Christian roommate. Uh, I never even invited him to Chi Alpha. He just said, where do you go on Thursdays? And I said, oh, to this thing. And I said, what thing? I'm like, oh, it's, it's Chi Alpha. It's, it's like a fraternity thing. And he's like, is it like a church thing? I'm like, yes. He's like, can I go? I was like, yes, you can. And I invited you if anybody asks. I'm a good Christian. I think of one semester and we made a commitment to each other to watch a different movie every night and then talk about them. Remember the meals we shared, the road trips we took, the devotional times together? I remember my first week as a freshman in Chi Alpha meeting a girl named Hannah, who's now my wife. Okay. It doesn't always happen like that, so you guys are all out of the first week. It probably didn't happen. Sorry. No money back guarantee. In her, I found someone who was independent and persuasive and kind and compassionate, who challenged me and was willing to call me out when no one else was. I think about Craig, my campus pastor, who pursued me, who took me to lunch after lunch to say loving things, caring things, and really hard things, to help me make sure that what I was saying and how I was living were lining up. I think of all the times I went to City Cafe for $5 and meeting three and sweet tea. You could not beat it. I think about Brandt. He was in one of my life groups, my men's life group, on Friday nights at a party school. Talk about interesting time to have a life group. But he was there every week. He would come with great questions. He would earnestly pray for me. He became a friend I could rely on. 
I think about someone named Kirby, who was my closest friend for most of college. He was someone who I just saw so much leadership potential in, and I was like, oh my gosh, this person will do even greater things than I would do in the kingdom. I just want to be around them and grow them and invest in them. And he was the type of person that when he was winning, I felt like I was winning. He challenged me, and we laughed together and went to the gym together. We drove five hours one way to buy a pen for our campus pastor. Because in college, you just do dumb things and think it's fun. You just throw away money and enjoy it. It's wonderful. I think of Kayla, one of the first young women that my wife Hannah discipled. And Kayla was at everything. She was showing up. We used to do this thing called adopted dorm where we'd go for two hours on a Sunday afternoon. And we'd go into, into a specific dorm and we'd clean every toilet in the dorm in apartments, communal, and we would just say, hey, we're Kai Alpha, we love you. And she never complained one bit. I thought of the idea, I didn't want to do the idea, but we were small, so I had to think of ideas and do the ideas. And she's the one that kept me doing it because she never gave up. God designed this and designed me for this. He designed you and I for good things, for godly things. He reveals himself to us in many ways, including others. But if I could be honest, not all of those relationships ended well. See, it's never a true friendship if you can't get hurt in relationship. You're never a close spiritual friend unless there's that risk, that risk of pain, the risk of disappointment, the risk of disillusionment. Because of sin and brokenness, we'll experience levels of deep joy and great sorrow. Jesus is constant, but there will be high highs and low lows when you're living deep in community. Ryan and I, we're still friends. He's a missionary in Morocco, and we had lunch last semester. It was the first time we'd seen each other in about 10 years. It was pretty amazing. So thumbs up. That one's still good. Hey, my roommate Josh, who 10 years after Kyle is still church shopping. Like at that point, that's not shopping. That's just like window shopping with no engagement. So he and I aren't that close, and I don't know where he is with Jesus. Hannah, I mean my wife, three thumbs up. I, I came out a winner there. I mean, absolutely. I married up, no doubt. We used to play this game in college where we like, the two of us would be in the room and be like, on the count of three, say who you think is the smartest. One, two, three, and we always picked ourselves, and that's why I loved her. Craig, two thumbs up. He's still a mentor in my life. He's still pastoring students in Alabama. We're not as close as we were when I was a student, but we've had the privilege of of sharing wins and losses together over the phone and Skype. Brant no longer follows Jesus. A few years after college, he said, this is all a crock. I don't b believe it. I don't want to hear about it. I don't want to be in a relationship with any of you. I, don't, I can't even hate God because I don't think he's real. So that's definitely a thumbs down moment. I think of Kirby. And things didn't end well with Kirby and I. Uh, imagine a church split in a Chi Alpha, and then it got messy and we went from being best friends to then not speaking at all. And that's like the G-rated version of the story. And I think of Kayla, who left her job as a nurse, who sold her three-bedroom house to do a Chi Alpha internship 10 years after she graduated from college, who's serving at the University of Texas San Antonio, investing in five young women, and their lives are being changed because of her influence. Here's the thing, and here's why I share these stories. You and I, we want the promised peace in verse 15, but we don't want the path leading to it. The path is heaven-minded thinking coupled with an assassination of self and self-desires. 
All of us are longing for peace. No one here is saying, nope, I've got too much peace in my life and story. I'll pass. But very few of us will walk the, the path that Paul lays out. It's thinking about heaven things, not earth things. And it's letting some things die so that we can have new life. Maybe you didn't even realize that we're promised peace. Or maybe like me, you spent much of your Christian life trying to fix your external situations in a hope for an external resolve that would lead to an inner resolve. But the problem with that is that the world is still broken once you fix it. In secret, you don't actually fix it. It usually gets worse the more you try to control it. And I think it's important that we realize before a discussion question how simple and how easy it is to think and focus on earthly things. Even Chi Alpha ministry, for me, can be something that I pursue with an earthly mind and an earthly heart, even though it has spiritual overtones. Did I like my sermon? Who's coming to my life group? When they shared their testimony, did I get a starring role or at least like a backup role that was sort of key? Do I love the tools of discipleship more than I love actual discipleship? Is my focus whether I was well-received or Jesus was well-represented? Was I happy all the time or was I joyous and whole? What did people think about me and how will people think when they find out who's here and who isn't here on this room on a Thursday night? I share that because I can easily make ministry idolatry. I can easily take something good and holy and pursue it in unholy ways. It's taking a good thing and putting it in the place of a God, putting it as place as God, that we're serving it. And I gotta be honest, if I can make ministry into idolatry, I think you probably have the skills to make a secular undergrad degree into idolatry. If I could turn a discipleship ministry into idolatry, I think it's possible, maybe, that you could turn your secular government role into idolatry. These aren't bad things. Kyle is not bad. The State Department's not bad. Your internship is not bad unless it's on Thursdays at 8.30. <laughs> but they do become bad when we act, plan, talk, and think like they're the best things in life. In other words, I think many of us fall in love with good things, and we give our heart completely away before even considering how we might love godly things. We settle for good instead of wanting more God and godly things. The good news is that this passage gives us not a foolproof solution to our life's problems, but something greater, the gift of peace in our inner life no matter what's happening around us. We're going to take four or five minutes for our discussion question for this week. And it's a pretty simple one, but it's a big one. What in your life needs a funeral? So that you can experience birth or life in a related area. Like I said, it's a softball question. Four minutes, and the band will come up after that. It's, it's my hope that you and I would understand that the tone of the discussion, even though it feels weighty, that it's ultimately hopeful. And as the band comes up, I want to explain why. Because when you and I are used to discussing death, it's from a temporal perspective. It's from an earthly perspective where death equals ending. But if we view death from an eternal perspective, from a theological perspective, from a biblical perspective, death is always an ending and a beginning. For us, in our reality, from our perspective, death seems like something's over. From heaven's perspective, 
every human being is going to live on forever and ever. From heaven's perspective, it's death that always precedes life. Why don't you stand with me as you're able, and we're going to prepare for a time of worship. And honestly, our hope is that we can begin to live in, to sing in, to hope in the joy. Because I think some of us can be so obsessed with this idea, oh my gosh, there's something in my life that has to die, that we're so obsessed with that that we haven't yet lived in the delight that there's new life on the other side of that. That there is more of God for each of us, and he's going to exceed your expectations. That there's more of his faithfulness and goodness, his graces, than is in your past. That as you look forward to what's next, it won't be easy, but it will be worth it. That as you have your mind, like Paul says, on heavenly things, you are literally in the spirit with Christ hidden next to God. The joy of the gospel isn't that life now is on easy mode. It's that life becomes incredibly meaningful. It's that we get to live not by our own standards, but we get to live the way we were designed. That we're going to take our cues from the creator and not our circumstances. So I want to pray to position us in that joyous posture. God, I ask that you would help us to see beyond the pain of a death, something that maybe we have to give up or you want us to give up. And, and just remind us that like you're taking things from our hands so that you can give us better things. And in fact, you're not just taking things to give us more things, you're taking things to give us you. I thank you, God, that we ultimately get you. And like Paul says in Colossians, and we can experience that you are enough. And God, I just confess that you don't feel like enough to me sometimes when one eye is on earth and one eye is on heaven. But God, I thank you that when we look fully on you, it is true that life may be difficult, but you are enough and that we have joy and peace and kindness when we see you most clearly. Help us to focus our attention on you to receive the life that you have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.